and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 374 and my conversation with Pablo performer and teacher, college professor and freelancer, Sean Matavetsky. We'll get back to him shortly. But first up, marching and mini-mazoo updates. We found out this past Sunday that the University of Missouri has made it to a New Year's Six Bowl for the first time in about a decade. A really good season by the team has led us to the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, which will be played on December 29th, and will be playing Ohio State. It's pretty cool to be in a large bowl game in a stadium like where the Dallas Cowboys play, a.k.a. Jerry World. We're excited for the date of that game as well. Placing between Christmas and New Year's in the United States should be a good time. Additionally, I got to travel for the first time in four years to the Women's Volleyball NCAA Tournament as the pep band director. Once again, heading out to Lincoln, Nebraska to play in the first two rounds. Mizzou won round one going away against Delaware, then got beaten in a tough three-setter to National Powerhouse Nebraska. The best part of this trip, as with many trips like this, are the students. They were incredibly enthusiastic, they played well, they represented the school well, and the Nebraska folks loved us. I mean, they could not stop complimenting us the whole time we were there. Moments like those are why we do what we do. And with that, let's move on to today's guest, Sean Medvedsky. I was glad to meet Sean here for the first time, though I'd known of him for a while through some of the ensembles he's performed with at previous PASICs. He's a total percussionist based in Montreal with a specialty in tabla performance, both in and out of traditional Indian groups. He is also on the faculty of McGill University there, teaching percussion, tabla, career development, and oral skills. And he does a lot of freelance work all over the world. Sean's also here because he presented at PASIC 2023. He did a session on performing tabla with effects pedals, and from all indications, it went well. Unfortunately, I was unable to see this due to prior commitments, but I hope if you were at PASIC, you got to see it. We'll discuss his presentation, talk about his life in Montreal, all things tabla performance and education, and get to some of his favorite movies and music and so much more. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 31st, 2023, and it begins right now. Uh, so the last few years, I've been uh, exploring that as a way of uh, expanding, let's say, the, the timbral sonic palette of what the tabla can do. Always been interested in electronic music. Uh, but didn't want to get involved with like programming, like Max MSP, that kind of stuff. Effects pedals, guitar pedals, basically, right? Very hands-on, easy, not that expensive unless you go for a lot of, like boutique stuff. Uh, so a very accessible way of getting into electronics. So I'll be presenting with Tabla, but of course it's applicable for any percussion instrument. What are the ways in that you've gotten into the electronic side of your performing okay so i i've worked a lot with composers like over the last 20 something 25 30 years i guess i've been playing a lot of pieces by composers uh, whether written for me or written for other people like i'm sure lots of percussionists have done 
And over the last few years, I've been wanting more and more to play my own music, to try my own things out. I've also been doing a lot of improv, whether you want to call it free improv or the improvisation we have in Indian music and wanting to kind of bring that together. And of course, like a lot of us, the pandemic provided some time to explore other avenues and different things. And this was one thing that I really wanted to to get into, um, the idea of processing tabla with the, with effects pedal. So I got into that and it's actually very, very addictive. It's very dangerous for percussionists in a way because, you know, we like to acquire things, right? Oh, that could be a useful sound. Oh, I, I can see I can use that for something, right? So this starts to happen with pedals, right? You get one, you get two, you get three. And then before you know it, you have like 10 um, and then something new comes out, you know, and then there's always more. Um, right. So at first it was just trials, you know, just testing things out, uh, nothing live, you know, just at home. I participated in something online last year called January. So it's in the month of January, post a video every day of some exploration and that was actually very interesting it was actually hard to do you know to every day you know to go through that creative exercise every day to post something original um so that was probably my first kind of big like public you know performance in a way even though it was virtual just started posting these things because um, i know for a lot of people they see okay sean yeah he does this he does indian music he accompanies dance this and that and people know i do contemporary music too and i play with orchestras and things like that but this this was a, a new avenue right so i didn't know how people would react but people are pretty receptive and some new people came out also that that i didn't know before and made a lot of new contacts and new new online friends through that through that common interest in uh, in pedals and all of a sudden i'm connecting a lot with guitarists right <laughs> more than before then, uh, you know, so how I've worked it into my performing is, you know, very often I, I get asked to do either tabla workshop, demo, or sometimes recitals. Uh, and usually it won't be a pure, you know, contemporary music recital or traditional recital. Usually it's a bit of both. Like even if someone asks me, it's a new music organization and they want me to do a tabla recital, I'll, I'll work a traditional solo into there. Um, so my recitals tend to be mixed, you know, between traditional solo and music by composers. But now instead of playing music by composers, sorry, composers, uh, now I, I'm putting in little, I call it like comprovisations, we could say, right? Like partially composed, very much improvised also, uh, pieces that I'm that I'm composing for tabla with pedals. So it's very much like your, you know, tabla with uh, fixed media kind of pieces, but it's live, the electronics are all generated live um, there's always an aspect of it that's recognizable from performance to performance, but there's always a lot of items that are elements that are unpredictable. And, you know, that, that's where the improvisation comes in because you know how the pedals will react, but it's never exactly the same each time. It could have to do with volume levels, tempos, all kinds of things. And so there's a lot of variability to it, which I like. I mean, already, you know, part of the Indian classical tradition, improvisation is a big part of the tradition. So I, it doesn't bother me that, that I like that. In fact, like that, that's a, an asset to it, that, you know, an advantage or a, you know, something I really like about it is that, that I get to improvise a lot and go with the flow. So that's what's been happening now. So when, when I'm being asked to do kind of a, some kind of a solo tabla recital, I'm combining traditional tabla 
with these uh, instead of pieces by composers, these pieces by me with, uh, with pedals. So I had a chance to kind of premiere some of these things actually at uh, Baylor in uh, Waco uh, last spring. Uh, that's uh, Todd Mien School. I have some recitals booked actually in the spring in Barcelona of all places, which is which is great. And there's a, a musical instrument museum there. And um, after that at um, Virginia Commonwealth VCU, uh, Justin Alexander School. I'll, I'll be I'll be coming there. So it's it's these mixed like uh, Indian classical slash tabla with pedals concerts, and we'll see how that how that goes because this is a you know kind of a new paradigm for me. When you say comp improvise, is that the word you kind of came up with? Yeah, like comp comprovisations. Comprovisation. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's way better than comp improvise. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but but. When you're saying that, are is is the is it that the outline that you have like kind of an idea of where things will go, but the execution is is not there, or or is not 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 there is not completely done, or is it that you've you've said some some things you're just like I'm literally gonna do if it comes to my mind I'm gonna make it happen right mm-hmm. there and and whatever that is 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 this version of a piece. So I, I actually see it a lot like an Indian classical tabla solo. So meaning, you know, if I'm I'm driving from Montreal to Toronto, right, I'm using Canadian references. Um, yeah. You know, you can just get on the main highway and go in a straight line. You know, so I know I'm going from A to B, right? But sometimes you can take little detours, right? Oh, that looks interesting. That big apple, what's that? You know, and then you go there and they sell apple pies, things like that. So, you know, the pieces are like mapped out in terms of, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to go to that. And then I'm going to go to that other thing. But in between those, there is room, you know, so maybe I do have some fixed rhythms that are pre-composed, right? Like motives, whether traditional or, or original, but it's more what the pedals are doing. I find in this case, that's really driving things, right? Because when the pedals are doing more rhythmic things, that lets you do certain things. When it's more free and you know spacey, you can't really put rhythmic things with that because sometimes it just becomes a big mess. Unless you want to create the big mess, that that's okay too. That's totally valid. It's more like a sound worlds, like going from this one to that one to that one, and what happens along the way. And I'll, I know in advance, like this will be something more in time. This will be something more free, more spacious, more dense. Um, but there's quite a lot of freedom in there again, which, which I like, I don't want to notate these things. I I don't intend for other people to play these pieces, um, because that would be a challenge, right? You would need to either specify effect types very specifically, right? Uh, or you have to force people to buy the same pedals as you, uh, right? Which, which is not necessarily good for for creativity and you know the individual expression so it's more like this is something for myself i I don't really intend to like i'm going to publish these pieces and things like in a way it's like early electronic music like sometimes electronic composers they would write some piece for a specific rack mount effects unit and then they would give you indications like preset number three this setting that setting that setting and if you didn't have that specific piece of gear you couldn't play the piece but usually you could only play the piece if the composer was there because they're the ones who had the gear. 
you know, so I, I definitely don't want to do that kind of thing. So I, I, it's, I, I'm just keeping it for myself. But the idea with the, the clinic at PASIC is to show people how, how easy it is really uh, as a way of getting into electronic music with percussion. It's very straightforward. Like I said, like you don't have to have any programming knowledge or any technical knowledge, really. If you could plug in a microphone, you know, you could plug in some cables, you could turn knobs, right? <laughs> it, it's a very, very accessible way of getting into electronic music. Has the music you've been working on in this format been, has it also included pre-recorded items that you're playing with? Not yet. Uh, I'm trying to generate everything live myself, though I'll surely get into that at some point. Sometimes like I'll, I'll lay down like a loop with a kalimba or so, something like that or a drone, you know, but I still like lay it down live and then, you know, but um, a lot of looping pedals, including one I have, you can preload audio files into it and then I could just push a button and make my life easier and just have it play back you know, yeah. the perfect loop without me having to make it live. But I, ha I haven't gotten there yet. So I don't know. I'm having fun with, with seeing what I can do live. And actually, a lot of the time, I'm not doing, like, I guess, traditional looping, if looping has become something traditional, you know, where someone lays down a groove, loops that, they lay down something else on top of that, they loop that. The kind of looping I'm doing is very imperfect, very glitchy. Because one of the things that got me into this was the idea of um, old reel-to-reel -reel tape. Yeah. Um, like bad reel-to-reel, -reel, like, you know, not not a machine that's been kept in good condition, sure. you know, or or an old tape delay. And the artifacts that come out of that, the, the pitch variations that come out of that, like the, it was that aesthetic that really got me into this in the first place. Um, so when I'm tending to do loops, I'm, I'm tending to not do good loops. Like, you know, so they're jumping and skipping uh, and they're not working in a usual, you know, groovy way that we would do it. So sometimes I set the loop length just in, in, in a non-specific way. Like I'm not counting. I just set the length of a loop and I just play on top and play on top. So there, it creates actually really complex rhythmic relationships. Um, you know, if you tried to notate that. <laughs> It'd be quite something. Um, but so I haven't been using these pedals, like maybe in, in quotations, the way you're supposed to, <laughs> because I'm going for that glitchy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like the tape has gone bad. The machine is broken. This kind of an aesthetic. <laughs> it, within uh, Tabla performance, is this completely new? Are there other people who who do this kind of, who do this kind of work or are working with, uh, live electronics in the way that you are? I, I don't think the same way, but I'm definitely not the first one to to put Tabla with electronics. Um, when I think of Tabla with electronics, the first name that comes to mind is Talvin Singh. Um, he, he's still active now and he's actually doing, I, I see on his social media, he's doing things with pedals. So he, he started, I believe in the, in the, he was very, he became very well known more towards the late nineties. There's a, kind of Asian underground scene, uh, very like influenced by uh, like drum and bass, kind of part of the drum and bass genre. And he's been at it uh, since then. Uh, but that's, you know, it's like uh, groovy music and, you know, relating to uh, the dance music, electronic music, uh, DJ culture, that kind of stuff. But he's he works with pedals, he works with effects, he works with a lot of stuff like that. Tabla, 
what what makes it very accessible to this world of electronics is because 99% of the time we amplify tabla. Indian classical music has become an amplified genre, mm -hmm. right? It's only if you play a very small concert, maybe for 20 people in someone's home, maybe you play on amplified. But generally, even in a house concert can be amplified. But generally, most of it, like any stage performances are amplified. So already we're popping a mic on the tabla already. So it's ready to go, right? As a like a, an electric instrument in a way. Then there's other issues though, you know, technical issues to, to, to get through. But it works really well. It's very natural. So yeah, so Talvin Singh's been doing it for a long time. Even Zakir Hussain got into that for a while. There's a Karsh Kale also uh, in that Asian underground scene. But I don't think there's been, uh, you know, other than a few composers who have written like fixed media pieces. And I did have some pieces written for me, like with Max MSP in the in the early days. Um, I'm not aware, uh, like, of, of people doing exactly like what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm sure I'm. I can't be the only one. You know, it, it's very like, like I said, it's very easy. You put a mic on the tabla, you run it through uh, some pedals. Anyone can do it. Um, and I'm hoping other people will will do it as well. Um, but I don't think anyone's been coming at it from from exactly this angle. For me, it's important that everyone know that this is. You know, not a very you know technical, difficult thing. I'm going to go go over effects pedals in general. Uh, talk about different effects types, and then talk about my approach, my pedal board. You know why I made the choices that I made uh, with respect to tabla specifically. But really, my goal is to show how accessible this is. So I don't want anyone to to think like, oh, technology. This is going to be really difficult. This is going to be over my head. Like the whole point of this is it's very, very accessible and easy to do and anyone can do it, uh, whether it's tabla or kalimba or snare drum for, you know, any instrument, really, it, it's something that's very easy for people to to get into. And I think that electronics, it's a natural extension of percussion, right? Like Varez, I mean, going from ionization to what was it? Poem electronic, I think, you know, getting, you know, the electronic music, uh, it's natural for percussionists to get into electronic music. So we don't have to wait for composers to do it for us. We can we can do it ourselves too. <laughs> Sean, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are at this point. Oh boy, what do I do? Lots of things. I <laughs> I do lots of things. So uh, one, one is I'm teaching at the Schulich School of Music at uh, McGill University. Um, we're four percussion profs there. So uh, I'm one of the part-times. Um, I have very varied responsibilities. I, we have a tabla ensemble. So that's uh, 15 to 20 students playing tabla. I teach the methods courses for music education, but I also teach uh, professional development and an ear training course based on uh, South Indian rhythms, uh, Solkaji. So that, that keeps me quite busy and I'm probably even forgetting some courses that I teach. And then aside from that, I'm active as a tabla player in all, all kinds of genres, whether that's accompanying, uh, you know, North Indian classical music, santur, sitar, katak dance, some different ensembles, like um, one called Marivetsky uh, Amiri Page. It's a tabla, Persian santur, and harp, and that's all original compositions. Uh, by the three of us together, collective compositions. I'm part of a free improv group of sound, mind, and body. I'm part of a percussion ensemble, Ensemble Dunia. So lots of different varied things going on. And then aside from that, 
you know, over the, the last, uh, whatever, 25, 30 years, been commissioning a lot of composers to write new music uh, for Tabla. And in the last few years, especially, people have become more interested in Tabla concertos, whether with a wind ensemble or with orchestra. And so I've been very fortunate in the last few years to be doing uh, a reasonable amount of, of uh, Tabla concertos. Uh, which is, you know, it's always, it's always great to do, you know, a percussion concerto with orchestra doesn't happen every day, let alone a tabla concerto. So I, I've been very uh, grateful, you know, when you, when, when I've been getting that call, you know, to do a tabla concerto with an orchestra. That's the quick summary. Oh, I forgot something very important. Yes. <laughs> I'm working on a new album. It's a new project of mine uh, called Temporal Waves. And it's uh, an extension of the pedal exploration, but not in, in, let's say, the new music, free improv side of things. It's it's uh, another side of electronics where I'm bringing uh, tabla and pedals and synths together, uh, kind of a nostalgic retro, retro future 80s, uh, I don't know, tabla meets stranger things, if you want, type of thing. Uh, and again, very much exploring this um, kind of broken tape aesthetic, uh, tape warble, you know, the warmth of analog tape, vintage synthesizers, this kind of thing. So it's that's a whole new avenue uh, for me. Though I did do electronic music in the 90s. Um, this is a kind of a return to that. You had also said that you're, you have or are working on a book? Yeah, so I, um, a couple of years ago, I released uh, Rudimental uh, with Liquid Drum, uh, Todd Mien. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, Rudimental Snare. Uh, solos uh, inspired by tabla repertoire. So it's basically you're playing tabla on snare drum uh, using rudimental language. So it's a great way for you know people looking for some new rudimental style repertoire. Um, it's a great way to learn about the tabla, North Indian music, North Indian rhythm um, without being hands-on with the tabla, right? Because a lot of people I think know you know, the tabla is a, a big investment. You have to really devote yourself to it uh, to really get into it. Uh, so I know a lot of percussionists are fascinated by tabla, but they they either don't have the resources to learn or they don't maybe have the, they know they don't have the time to to really get into that deeply. So here with this book, you can play tabla repertoire, but on an instrument that you already know. And that's that's a core part of the percussion curriculum, snare drum. Everyone has to play snare pieces. So why not play some snare pieces that at the same time you're learning about tabla drumming. All right. So how do you get connected to McGill? How, and what was kind of the, the situation for you to start working there? So I, I went to school at McGill. My, my story is very boring. I'm from Montreal. I live in Montreal now. I went to McGill. I teach at McGill now. Um, so I, I did my bachelor's, my master's, uh, spent a few years out in the world. I was a uh, continuing uh, learning tabla privately. Uh, that, that was never really something that happened in school. That was always something that was happening outside of school. My old prof, uh, Pierre Belluse, retired. Um, there, there, was, uh, there was some other people. Um, there was Darcy Gray, Andre Malashenko. They were doing some teaching. And then at some point, I got a call that there was some opening and I responded to the call and there, that was it. <laughs> At first, I was really mainly just teaching the um, music education course, the methods course, but as and then private lessons too. Um, but as time progressed, like by by the next year, I was like, oh, well, what would you think of having a tabla ensemble and this and that, right? So 
very quickly, oh, let's add a hand drumming class, this, that. So, so, so the courses started to really expand and, and go from there. So I've become kind of the, the, uh, the percussion teacher that generally students will, so the students are not doing snare, timpani, marimba with me. They're doing hand drumming. They're doing accessory percussion. They're doing tabla. Uh, it's like all, all those, you know, those, those other fun things uh, outside of the, you know, snare, timpani, marimba, multi, they tend to do with the other, the other three props. Remind me who's at McGill with you? The full time is uh, Fabrice Marandola. And uh, we also have uh, Christy Ibrahim and Alexandre Lavoie. The way it works is we kind of, it's a team teaching model. So we each have different specialties with overlap, of course. Um, so Fabrice, uh, originally from France, studied with Dilliclus, right? Uh, from that, you know, French conservatory style. Christy also um, had studied at McGill. Uh, she does a lot of the keyboard teaching uh, and also has a lot of experience with the music theater. And uh, Alexandre, he's the percussionist with the Orchestre Metropolitain, which is kind of Montreal's uh, second orchestra uh, after the Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal. So we have we have two you know big professional orchestras. So he he's the he's the the, the principal percussion for for that orchestra. So you know he's doing a lot of the orchestral stuff, and we all overlap because of course we all play everything. You know we all have we all we all have that let's say you know Western traditional uh, percussion background as well. But we divide up the teaching and the students. Um, maybe not every semester study with all of us, but over the course of their degree, they do study with all of us, so they can benefit from from all our expertise. So it's really yeah this team teaching model. Okay, so the tabla ensemble, I it would seem like the first issue would be we need a lot of tabla. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> when I asked at McGill, you know, can can we have a tabla class? You know, tabla ensemble. Um, at that time, budgetary situation was pretty good, and we were actually able to get ten pairs of tabla off the right off the bat like that. So that was very helpful. Now I said the class can be 15 to 20 students. So 10 tabla is not enough. Um, over the years, we've gotten a few sets donated. Um, we're at 13 pairs now. It's still not 15 to 20. Um, so generally how we work is um, we lend out tabla to those who need them. If anyone is able to buy their own set, which is always better because a, a, a new set that's your own set you're going to take better care of it. It's going to sound better, um, you know, than, than drums that are close to 20 years old at this point. Um, you know, of course, we do head changes as needed. Uh, but, um, yeah, so I encourage people to to have their own set of tabla if they're able to. And definitely if someone has taken the class for more than a year, I encourage them to get their own tabla. Because they say, look, now you've been taking the class for a year, two years, you know, you're getting serious about it. You would benefit from having your own drums. So th that that's how we cover the the over thirteen uh, amount. So so we have a, a certain a certain number of tabla that we lend out to students, and then though the other people uh, purchase their own. Um, I also keep a list of uh, so if there are students who have taken the class who had their own tabla who want to sell them. Uh, they send me an email and I keep a list. So then when there are students who want to buy a tabla, they start usually with this list of, of used instruments that they can buy from, you know, so at, at a reduced price. So I, I try to facilitate it. I try to, I try to make it easy and affordable as much as possible. Not everyone wants to buy a set of tabla. For some, some people take the class for a semester or a year, but there's 
plenty of students, especially percussionists, but not only percussionists, uh, who take the class for their whole degree, right? So if you take the the class for three, four years, you, know, you can develop some some decent skills. But still, usually I say, you know, people ask, how long will it take till I can this, that, you know, till I can play? My answer is, you know, after 10 years, you become a beginner. Right. So, you know, even three, four years of group classes is, is a good start, but still need more than that. <laughs> Someone who does not know very much about the instrument, particularly cost, what what's a typical, how much would a starter set, I guess, or if a student is yeah. buying, how much are they typically spending? Yeah, it really depends where you are. I can say around maybe four or five, six hundred dollars. Um, there's not a big price difference between like a beginner set, intermediate set, advanced set. Um, especially if, if you're able to find something used for $200 or something like that. Okay. But new 350, 400, you know, uh, the shops in town here typically ranges like 450 to 800, but that that's Canadian dollars. Um, and that's, uh, you know, so that that there's like a 30% difference. So so you have to reduce for the US. But it really depends because if you're in a bigger city where there's maybe more options, um, the prices will be less. Like even here, like in Canada, in Montreal, there's one shop. Right? We just have one shop that has tabla locally. In yeah. Toronto, uh, there's a, there's quite a few shops. Uh, still not many, but there's a few. So when there's competition, the price will go down a little bit. Um, so, and of course, you know, if, uh, if someone has the opportunity to go to India or something like that, you can get it for a much more affordable uh, rate. But then, of course, you have to get your plane ticket. Is there a, uh, a group of literature that's for tabla ensemble or is this just all new stuff that you are overseeing in this position? Traditionally, tabla ensemble doesn't exist in Indian classical music, but it's the result of group classes. Yeah. Right. So th there are people who play in groups, but it, it's not coming so much from, you know, the tradition. It's in the tradition. It's a solo tradition. So, you know, you have sitar solo accompanied by tabla. You would have tabla solo, usually accompanied by a melodic instrument. Um, but when, when you learn in a group setting then say, hey, we want to play together. Basically, you're taking the tabla solo repertoire, which is traditional. And I just do a little some simple orchestrational things to move it around the group. So that we're not playing in unison throughout the whole the whole performance. So I'm not I'm not really composing or creating new repertoire. We're learning the traditional repertoire, and I'm teaching in the traditional way, oral tradition. Uh, you know, we don't use any books or anything like that. Uh, we're we're really doing it uh, through the oral tradition. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's fully traditional repertoire. Just we're playing it as a group rather than playing it individually. So anyone in the class could take what we're doing in class and play it on their own. And then that's a, that'll be a fully formed, you know, traditional you know, beginner tabla solo. And what we'll do in the group to move, move things around is, we'll, you know, maybe uh, if we do a, a theme and variation, let's say, then each variation, maybe someone takes a solo for each variation. Uh, or when there's a tihai, which is a, a cadence uh, phrase repeated three times, very simple the very simple like gist of what a tihai is a phrase three times so we can orchestrate that by by moving the that phrase around the group you know left side right side unison or sometimes within that phrase there are things that we can move around uh from person to person so sometimes we have a kind of a wave motion from side to side or this kind of thing um yeah so it's just finding ways of orchestrating that that solo repertoire 
for for a group context. How did you get connected with the other performing groups that you perform with? That not not the necessarily the like the if you're doing kind of symphony stuff and things like that, but the other tabla oriented groups that you're working so, with. Yeah. So in terms of like Indian classical music, the scene is very small here. Any tabla player, we all know each other. All the sitarists, you know, will know all the tabla players. Like all, you know, all, all the practitioners of Indian classical music in town. Basically, we all we all know each other uh, in some way. Whether it was, you know, probably we would have met at a concert for the first time, right? Like, you know, attending. You know, there's some artists that pass through town. There's uh, organizations in town that put on concerts by you know by touring musicians uh, from India. And so we would probably be attending these concerts and, and meeting each other for the first time in these contexts or seeing, you know, these people, you know, these other people's performances and then going up and meeting them afterwards. Uh, but like I said, it's very small. Like there's like a handful of tabla players, like three sitarists, four in the whole province, five, five in the province. You know, so it's like a handful of this, a handful of that, a couple of sorrowed players one Santur player, one dancer, uh, well, with all her students, of course. Um, but, you know, it, it's very few. So we all get to know each other pretty quickly. And I'm very lucky to be a tabla player because everybody needs a tabla player, right? Like a sitarist needs a tabla player, a dancer needs a tabla player, a singer needs a tabla player, right? Um, so, of course, I, you know, I play solo also, but uh, most of the time, tabla is as an accompaniment instrument, right? So, so I'm very fortunate, you know, in that way. Um, so when there's a need, uh, then, uh, you know, then, then I can get the call and, and we, we do, uh, you know, these uh, Indian classical performances. Um, but like, you know, that I, I, I'm performing in other contexts too. Um, it, it's pretty random. My life is quite random, you know, so sometimes, uh, a band or someone might want tabla for a recording session for their album and they would have you know heard of me from someone else that they know who worked with me before you know this kind of you know the usual the usual story otherwise one very interesting one is uh, ensemble dunia our premiere performance was at pasic 2012 i think 12 13 i'm bad with dates um <laughs> And that's with uh, Tony DeSanza, Dan Piccolo, Niraj Mehta, Jonathan Oval. So right, quite a, an illustrious uh, group of percussionists from uh, around the, the U.S. I'm the oddball in the group in many ways. <laughs> you know, the, the, the non-American in the group, right? Um, and so far, anyway, I'm, I, I just play tabla in the group. I, where everyone else in the group plays, they play everything. Uh, and what that basic concert was, uh, was a concert of concertos for like non-Western percussion, right? So there was a tabla concerto, conga concerto, and a darbuka concerto. I think they all knew each other from uh, Michigan. So again, like I'm the oddball because I didn't go there. Um, but it was through uh, Peyton McDonald. Uh, who went to Michigan, right? So, so this Michigan connection. Uh, and so he was writing a piece for that, the, the Tabla Concerto. And I've been working with Peyton for a long time now, uh, over, over 20 years. I don't know how many, he must have written at least 10 pieces for me by now. Uh, you know, and it's quite rare, a composer who, who has a working knowledge of Tabla. 
Yeah. So that was the fourth concerto <laughs> for Tobla and Percussion Quartet uh, that he wrote. And that's how I got involved uh, with that group. And, you know, we've since done a, a bunch of concerts, um, you know, around the university circuit. Uh, and actually, uh, we had a little tour. Uh, my last performances before the COVID pause uh, were with them, actually. And uh, we recorded an album, uh, which we'll be releasing very shortly, actually. Fingers crossed by PASIC, if not soon after. So that, that's, that'll have the three concertos uh, and a collective composition uh, called Dunia. Looking forward to yeah the release of that. Well, Sean, let's back up. You mentioned that you you grew up in Montreal. Yeah, correct. Do you have any family members in the arts? Not really. When I was young, you know, my parents, and grandparents encouraged me. Uh, I should become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a judge. This is what I remember. There were some family members who who played music. You know, one who played piano, you know, so I did, I did see some music, you know, growing up, but it's not, but not in my, in, in my immediate family. No, my brother and I, we both started learning drums at the same time. So I was seven and he was five. We started learning drums. Uh, and then he eventually went on to, uh, to guitar. And, mm. you know, even though he, he's not a professional musician now, uh, he, he still does play, you know, for fun uh, from time to time. So he so he went into the more uh, like logical or, you know, in quotations, like a, or, you know, a stable employment uh, route, you know, where I went into the more unpredictable route uh, of being a musician. <laughs> he could have done it, too. But uh, yeah, so we, we kind of took uh, different paths there. Our parents encouraged us. We were very lucky. They encouraged us with whatever we did. Even, uh, you know, if, even if I wasn't going to become a doctor or a lawyer, <laughs> this kind of thing, aside from, like I said, some cousins, uh, there, there, were, there weren't people like in the immediate family, like doing music very much. In Canada, was this a, when you're getting involved, is this like a, like a band setting, a school setting? Is this a private teaching setting? How are you, what's the musical start for you then? Yeah, so for me, uh, when I was seven, it was really uh, like a local corner music school, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a conservatory or anything formal. It was in some strip mall, like upstairs above a bakery kind of thing. Um, and really, it, it was kind of funny. How it started was in in my elementary school, we we had a music class, but it was mainly singing songs uh, while the teacher played piano. And I remember students would come in sometimes like with an instrument, like they would, you know, not talent show, but they would kind of show like some learned piano and they would play a piece for the class or someone learned guitar and they would play a piece for the class. I was like, I want to learn an instrument. You know, that's cool. Uh, and I told my parents that and they they called this local music shop and they found out, you know, what instruments do you offer? And they're just reading off this list to me. OK, so this is what they've got. Flute, clarinet, organ, guitar, drums, and, you know, they're just reading off this list and yeah, drums, that sounds cool. Okay. They're, like they're like, it seems like from what I remember anyway, that, that my choice was kind of arbitrary that it was, oh yeah, drums. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Can I, can I do drums? <laughs> you know, it was just, it was what, what appealed most out of that, that list. Um, so yeah, so private lessons in the, the local music school in high school, music class was an option. So I, I did that. 
because I was taking lessons, the music teacher wouldn't let me do drums or percussion. He said it would be too easy. So he put me on tuba. Um, but then after a few years, uh, then he needed me on percussion and I was able to go to, to do percussion for the last couple of years. Then uh, after that, uh, we have like here, so in Quebec, uh, even Quebec education is different from the rest of Canada. Our high school ends at grade 11 and our bachelor degree is only three years. We have an in-between college that's two years in between high school and university. So the, the total number of years is the same, but there I, may, I, I, I went into music there. So you start to specialize a little bit earlier in that way that it forces you to start to make some decisions before you get to university. Um, so there I, I went into music and then in university, I, I went into music. So, um, so I did get the high school band experience and, and, you know, and all those things. But when I first started, it was just, you know, my brother and me just, you know, on our own private lessons kind of thing. Within that experience, is there a marching component to what you all do? Not really. Um, yeah, marching in, in Canada, it, it's growing. It's definitely growing. But we don't have it very much uh, here. Like there are certain places where you can find it more and there are some drum lines here and there. But it's not like a major thing like the way it is in the U.S. And I think that probably has a lot to do with you know the importance of football or sure. like the relative importance because we have football, of course, uh, and it's popular and people go to games. But it, but it's not of of the you know it's not as integrated, let's say, in, into the general culture as as it is in the U.S. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, but like I said, there, there are drum lines coming up, and there's more and more. It's a trend like that. They're they're there is a drumline scene, um, but it's not integrated into the schooling in the same way. Um, I did get out to a school in um, in Alberta, um, and that's you know out in the prairies out west, uh, and and there quite a lot of schools had had drumlines. So I actually worked with with a school there. We did a tabla drumline piece, which which was quite cool. Yeah, well, that, you... now we need to get published so that other people can play it. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Aside from doing the music side, were you involved in anything else? Did you do while you were growing up? Did you do any sports or student government or church related activities? Or was there like a mathletes or any of those kinds of things that were part of your life? When I was very young, I was on a baseball team. I'm not sure if it lasted more than one summer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I did a lot of, you know, sports and things on the side, uh, but I was more the kind of person to play like in the lunch hour than actually being on, on the, the teams, you know, so yeah. more informally, you know, so I'd play volleyball, I would play um, like uh, hockey, but not, not ice hockey, like hockey in the gym, you know, this kind of thing, uh, you know, baseball with friends, uh, you know, on the weekend or after school. One thing I did start, um, I stopped though, when, when the pandemic hit, uh, I, I started curling. Uh, mm. which, which is very popular in a lot of Canada. It's actually not that popular in Quebec. Um, but I did, I don't know, I must have done four or five years of curling uh, before the pandemic. So that was a lot of fun. And that's, yeah, that, that's, that's a good winter sport. No, that's very cool. Was there much of a decision to go? You said you went to McGill for undergrad. So you're in town. Had you explored or looked for other places? Or were you like, this is here. I might as well just go here. Yeah. So it's kind of funny because, you know, now advising students and you know, yeah. things like that, you know, we say like, 
you know, make sure you audition at at least a couple schools, if not more. <laughs> Have some options, right? You never know yeah. what might happen. So looking back, I was very silly. I I mean, I just knew, like, I grew up in Montreal. McGill is a very respected school. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I, you know, it's pretty much Canada's top school. So, you know, it's, 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 we, it's kind of, we call it like Canada's Harvard, if you want. I just knew, okay, McGill's a good school. I want to go there. So I, I didn't even have to make any kind of a decision. It was just, so it wasn't like a convenience thing. It was really like, this is a really good school. I want to go there. And I only applied to McGill and I only auditioned to McGill. I didn't audition anywhere else. I didn't apply anywhere else. So, you know, I would never tell my students now to do yeah. that. Uh, but that's what I did back then very naively. But luckily it worked out and I didn't have any issues with that. So maybe things were easier back then, a little more straightforward. I don't know. <laughs> gotcha. When you first get there, what kinds of things are places where you know that you maybe you're pretty solid in one area but not in other areas what what kinds of things do you, happen when you first arrive well i think it's like this for a lot of people if you come from smaller schools you know and you're you know i don't want to say i was the best you know but i was i was a good student in mm -hmm. you know where i was before and then you come to university and you're like oh my god <laughs> I have, I have a lot to learn. Yeah. Right? I mean, but that's how we get better. Right. Is, is, is you know, and, and that's why it's great to have, a, you know, grad students around and this and that, because, you know, they're, they're a model for everyone else. So, yes. you know, so I went from seemingly like being like the most experienced player to being the least experienced <laughs> player, you know, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, seemingly knowing nothing in college. So before university, the, the special Quebec thing, I always played snare drum sitting down in a stool, mm. like a drum stool kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden I had to play standing up. It was like this, it was just even that was a completely, you know, new thing, like a, a new learning curve. Um, but, you know, every time I changed schools, you know, so going from high school to CJEP, the college thing, uh, going from there to university, it always feels like starting over, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I know like students go through that because a different teacher, different approach, different level, right? So different, um, standards, right? You know, at the time it's, it's a little, it could be a little bit frustrating. I think I was, I was quite strong on snare drum, uh, back then. Uh, I was like a book ahead of everybody else, like, like, like the whole Dilly Clues and that thing. Um, so that was good. Timpani was okay. I, I don't think I ever developed an amazing timpani tone, but I could get by. Uh, keyboards were never my my strong point. Uh, I did what I had to do. I you know, and I played my Bach fugues, and I played tape pieces, and this and that. You know, I, I played the pieces, but definitely took me the longest, I would say, to learn a keyboard piece, especially four mounts. But I suppose my my way of thinking is more rhythmic and timbral than melodic and harmonic. Uh, and I'm very good at like pattern recognition. And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, the, the, the types of patterns that there may be with melodic harmonic things are different kinds, or maybe there aren't patterns, uh, or it's an ever evolving pattern. And uh, so it didn't speak to me uh, as much. 
Also, I think the keyboard pieces tend to require more memorization. Though now people memorize everything. I don't know how they do it, but they, they do. <laughs> um, the, we tend to read our snare drum pieces and, you know, and have to memorize the keyboard pieces. I, I was always a pretty good reader. So a bad memorizer because, because of that. Uh, Tabla was what really, uh, you know, changed my memory capacity. Yeah. Was through, because Tabla, we have to memorize everything. I was never interested in memorizing anything. But it was because of tabla. I was also never interested in being a soloist, but it, tabla did that to me too. Um, I was never interested in using my voice for anything. Tabla did that to me also. Uh, so yeah, tabla changed my life in many ways. But yeah, musically, uh, yeah, memorization, becoming a soloist, uh, using my voice, right? That, that's all because of tabla. Tabla's fault <laughs> for everything. Yeah, I had to come out of my shell in a way. Is undergrad when you first encounter the instrument? It was uh, before in the, that like pre-university college. Ah. Um, I, I heard it on a recording and, you know, you can imagine any, any drummer percussionist, you hear tabla for the first time. It's like, wow, what's that? Right. right. You know, so just the sound was so amazing. I, I'd never heard any drum that sounded like that before. So, yeah. so it just hooked me right away. I had to find out what it was. This is pre-internet, right? So. I had to go to the library, <laughs> you know, because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know where it was from. I didn't, you know, I hadn't seen what it looked like. I heard it on a CD. Yeah. So, and it was just through process of elimination going through the liner notes because it wasn't even traditional music. It was a fusion thing. Um, just by leading, re, uh, reading the liner notes and by process of elimination, okay, I know what a bass is. I know what a guitar is. I know what a drum, you know, drum set is, right? Just going through the list of instruments and, oh, tabla. I don't know what that is. So that sound I heard must be that. Like mm -hmm. it, it was really like really basic, basic process of elimination and then finding out yeah. what it was and okay. Okay. Tabla. It's, it's a pair of drums. It's two. Okay. It comes from India. Okay. Great. You know, and, and, and then, you know, I got a set, couldn't figure anything out. Right? Mm -hmm. it, 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 it was a long process, you know, to find a teacher and to, to learn and, and to be able to play, uh, to be able to play something or, you know, anything at all took a very long time. Yeah. But I was very stubborn about that. You know, I, I really wanted to, and the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn more. Right. So of course you can imagine as a percussionist, um, you, you divide your practice time through, you know, with all these different categories of instruments. So, you know, if I'm increasing my tabla practice time, something has to you know give way at some point, you know, like other things get pushed to the side. So I, I made that choice. Uh, you know, uh, at some point that, uh, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to need the timpani so much. <laughs> I'm not going to need my four mile at marimba so much. You know, I did all that stuff, but then, you know, as, as I progressed more and especially after school, um, I was doing orchestral gigs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, like orchestral being at the back, you know, uh, yeah. cause now when I do an orchestra gig, I'm in the front, so it's different. <laughs> Nice. There uh, it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, you know, because I mean, there's plenty of orchestral percussionists in town. So like no one's calling yep. me to play crash cymbals, you know, you know, but just, yeah, the more, the more I was playing, because to play tabla professional, professionally, you have to do at least 10 years of at least six hours a day. And six hours is like minimum, 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 like to be like a, a barely competent <laughs> tabla player. Like, so there were periods where I was doing eight hours, 10 hours a day practice. Like, when are you going to practice snare drum if you're doing 10 hours a day of, of tabla, sure. you know? So, um, it, I just, you know, and, and I think a lot of percussionists do this in different ways. You know, we all strive to have a good foundation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but then someone will 
have an affinity for marimba, you know, they want to become a marimba soloist, you know, someone wants to become an orchestral timpanist, they're going to have to start to put more time towards those things. And ultimately, the other things are going to, you're going to practice them a little bit less, right? Or very often after school, you might practice some instruments on a per gig basis, right? Like, like, like if someone gives me a vibraphone part, I can still play it, you know, and all, but I'm not practicing vibraphone. Like, right. like I'll, I'll practice vibraphone if I have a gig where I need to practice vibraphone, right? <laughs> it's not something like that I'm keeping up. Like the so, only, like my day, my day to day, the only thing I'm keeping up day to day is, is tabla. That's like, as a performer, I'm really only playing tabla. Of course, in my teaching, I, I play everything. So maybe that, that helps to keep everything else uh, alive is the, is, is the teaching really. Uh, but as a performer, I'm only I'm only really playing tabla. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes, the comparisons make sense. And when you are in the period that you described, where you're doing, you know, years of six hours a day, just to kind of, I guess, gain just a basic sense of the instrument. What kinds of things are part of that prep process? So yeah, there's a lot. So usually would start the day with some technique warm-up. So my teacher uh, did some things that were maybe not completely traditional. Um, so my my teacher also taught Bob Becker. Uh, mm. So he he was around Western percussionists and he also also Russell Hardenberger, right? Like from those those Wesleyan days. You know, he was around Western percussionists a lot. And so he came up with exercises almost like rudiments so mm. we can practice basic phrases not every tabla teacher teaches that way so i don't know i'm just assuming that it came from a maybe a western percussion influence maybe he was doing it already before he came to the u.s but yeah but but it's very much like rudiments uh so so usually uh when i was in that heavy practice period two to three hours of technique usually two two hours of technique repetitive exercises and that's always starting very slowly, like at least half of the ultimate speed. And then yep. maybe I would go to a, a three over two type thing and then double that original speed. Uh, so it's a slow buildup, either that or a little bit of acceleration every now and then, mm -hmm. but usually uh, keep the same beat and just change the subdivision, uh, increase the subdivision. Um, so yeah, so let's say two hour technique warm up in the morning. Um, but it's not just a warm up. It's, it's that, that's how you get polish on the sound and speed, right? Cause the speed only comes like, if you practice a phrase like four times, nothing's going to get better, right? Like, like you really need a, it's a long, it's a lot of repetition. You have to be either very patient or very stubborn. Uh, yeah. I, I think I'm, I think I'm not a patient person i think i was very stubborn like i just said i want to do it you know i want to be able to do this so and i tell my students to practice like this like i'll say i'm going to do this exercise for 30 minutes and then i put my watch down and because you can't wear a watch anyway when you play tabla uh, and i don't go to the next thing until my watch tells me i can go to the next thing you know yeah. so i, I like I, I just i just take the conscious decision out of it because it's hard to repeat something for 30 minutes. Like it's very mentally demanding and physically demanding to, to do yep. that. I mean, it could be, it could be 15 minutes. It could be five minutes. I mean, even sometimes five minutes, you know, um, there's, there's a, um, a one hour practice routine that I talk about in my book, but it, it, it involves, um, 
uh, five minutes per variation, right? So it's like you're doing things for five minutes. Five minutes is nothing. But by the time you're done, a, a bunch of these five minutes, you've done an hour, which is not nothing, right? Because five minutes is not a lot, but you you string a lot of five minutes together and you have an hour before you know it, right? Um, yep. And letting the the watch or the clock make the decision for you. So so that that's one part of the practice. Then there's a uh, repertoire, lots of repertoire you need to know. So generally we have two kinds of repertoire, the fixed repertoire, which is fully composed. And then there's repertoire that's like a seed for variation. So for improvisation, so like theme and variation. So the theme itself is composed, but then the improvisation, the, the variations are improvised. So you're improvising those variations. So, but when we learn the teacher will give a fixed set of variations, right? So essentially you're memorizing the teacher's improvisation in a way that right. teaches the, the personality of the composition, kind of the, the ways to improvise on that composition. But then you also need to practice improvising on your own, only when, when you get to a certain level, um, because at first you just play what the teacher gives you and that's it. You don't go, you don't go outside that. Um, but then, yeah, you do need to practice improvising. In in tabla playing, it said that every every day you're supposed to practice everything you know. Mm. So this is the problem mm -hmm. because as you get to <laughs> right as you get to know more, it's hard to to touch on everything, right? Right in a day. So you have all the you know. So you do a technique warm up, and then you have all these different kinds of compositions that you know that you have to practice, and you need to repeat a bazillion times each to try to get. The clarity, the polish, you know, the, you know, so the tone quality, the speed, et cetera, et cetera, the rhythmic accuracy, we have to be able to speak all the compositions too, not just to, to play them. Um, yeah. But speaking and playing together at the same time is very good for reinforcing, but also when the hands need a break, you can do just vocal practice, right? And that's still practicing. And people know now uh, the importance of mental practice and vocal practice, right? So it, give, it gives your hands a little break, lets the, the tensions in the arm come down a little bit, but you're still practicing, you know? Um, so trying to, to cover all those bases, trying to, to, in a way, you know, keep playing everything you know to keep it all in shape, right? right? So if someone asks me, like, tonight, I need to do a tabla, a one-hour tabla solo in concert tonight, mm -hmm. I, I can do it. Like anytime, like, you know, I mean, of course, if I know it's coming up, I'll do special practice for that. But the idea is you keep that, you keep that repertoire in shape going all the time in your mind, in your hands so that you're, you're ready to go. I mean, more than an hour, it could be an hour and a half solo. No problem. I mean, it's still demanding. Of course, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying like it's something that's easy, but, um, you need to keep that repertoire active because you don't perform with sheet music in front of you. You don't open up all your books in front of you on the, on the stage and say, well, what, what do I feel like playing now? Right. It, it, it's, it's only what you know that's memorized is what you can actually perform or play. And the thing is what, it's not just about tabla solo when you're accompanying someone, which is mostly what a tabla player does. When we accompany someone, we don't have any decision-making in what rhythmic cycle is being played, right? So a sitarist can play whatever raga in a seven beat cycle, in a 10 beat right. cycle, in a 16 beat cycle. So they're choosing the cycle and they're choosing the speeds. We're not choosing any of that. So you have to have repertoire for all these different 
tals, these different cycles. You have to have repertoire that works in all the different speeds, right? You have to have repertoire that responds to any possible musical situation. So, you know, so you have to try to keep everything as active as possible. So if you don't practice everything today, try to practice tomorrow what you missed today. Right. I mean, I think this, this is probably very familiar for a lot of percussion students, right? Like, oh, I yeah. didn't get to marimba today. I better make sure I do marimba tomorrow. Right. Oh, right. I didn't do timpani today. I'm going to start with timpani tomorrow. Right. So worst case scenario, if you're not doing everything every day, at least on a two day cycle, you're touching everything. Right. That That's that, that that's that that's what we, we aim for, because otherwise, if something gets set aside, right, you come to your lesson next week. Ah, I didn't practice snare this week. You know, then what do you do, right? Like a, a piece, something gets forgotten, it gets dropped, set aside. And then it, then it, in, in our case with, with Tabla, it starts to fade from our memory. And it wouldn't be hard to learn it again, but it's not there, right? You need it to be like in the forefront, right, right there, any, at any time, because you don't know when you might need it. And maybe it's a bit like jazz, jazz players and standards, like how many standards they know. Someone calls a tune. You got to know the you got to know the chords so you could play the tune, right? Well, and you got to know the tune also. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. All, all these things, yeah, right? Uh, impressive amount of memory. I feel like the the comparison that I that I could sense was like either you know like you're playing a jazz gig, or you're you're like subbing on you know like a pop thing, a pop concert or something. And they're just like, I need like you know some type of funk groove, and you're like, all right, yeah, I I can make that happen. And the same thing, you're just like, you have to know, you just have to be able to be like, that's it. I'm in. That's it. Like what they call, they call some style and you're like, oh, sorry, I haven't practiced that in yeah. two years. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. So it's, it's having everything ready to go as much as possible uh, yeah. so that uh, you can respond to the musical demands. Yeah. So you see being a tabla player is not so different from uh, other kinds of progression. <laughs> yeah. When you're in that mode where you're just trying to get uh, caught up or, or, you know, on the level as you're trying to get to, what are some of the physical issues that you have to deal with that are specific to tabla playing? Yeah. So the first one is you have to be able to sit for that amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> right. So when I started playing tabla, I couldn't even get both of my knees down, you know, sitting cross-legged. Yeah. Um, like one of my knees was always like up, like one leg, like sticking up, like yeah. almost a foot, you know? Uh, and for a long time, I would always have to sit on a big like meditation cushion, like a big, like a, you know, kind of like a five inch pillow kind of thing, yeah. like a big pillow. Yeah. Um, even, you know, I used to travel with it, like to India, to England, like trap, you know, that's like wasting like a, a third of my suitcase, you know, with this <laughs> pillow, my teacher right. used to laugh at me, you know, then, uh, yeah, after spending, especially some time in India on some very hard floors, mm -hmm. uh, I got used to <laughs> a little less comfort. Uh, and, and of course, with all the time practicing, the flexibility in the legs uh, improves. I mean, it used to happen. My, my feet would fall asleep all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. but like anything, right. You're practicing playing, you're practicing sitting, right? And the body yep. will will slowly uh, adapt and get used to it. But you have to get into it gradually, right? I mean, no one starts practicing six hours a day, right? You start with uh, 30 minutes, an hour. You go from an hour to two hours. You know, you may get up to four hours. You, it, it's a gradual process, right? So 
um, you know, if you try to go from one hour to six hours, uh, like I do a, an annual uh, intensive workshop every summer, first week of July, and students are doing four to six hours every day, no problem. Um, but I tell them before, make sure you ramp up your practicing right before the workshop, because if you're doing an hour a day, you're going to have a lot of trouble going up to five. Right? right. So at least get up to two, three hours per day in the weeks leading up to the workshop so that it's not a shock uh, to the system. So, yeah, so sitting is one part. Um, the other is the, the let's say the need for speed. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it, tabla players not like tabla playing is not just about playing fast, but there's a certain speed that that's needed for some compositions. People want to play fast, but it's not like magic. You have to put the time, um, and you have to push yourself. Uh, if you always play where you're comfortable, you never get better. You always have to push yourself a little bit, and that's again like you know playing with people who are better than you is is helpful you know being in lessons where you're getting you know you you're just a little outside of your comfort zone it's just a little bit too hard like that can be okay sometimes it's very humbling it's very difficult um but uh yeah the, the being pushed a little bit so putting in the practice time these long hours of practice you know i'm sure when i when i say to anybody in western classical music 6 8 hours a day people immediately think of injuries being very aware like of the tension in your arm, being very aware of your body. Um, we play with fire a little bit because if we're pushing ourselves outside the comfort zone, right, the forearm tenses up quite a lot. Um, and okay, play relaxed, play naturally, but some sounds at speed do require some careful application of tension, right? Otherwise, the hand will just flop around loosely. Right. There has to be a form to the hand. So if we're, if there's a form, it means that we're applying some, some tension there to maintain the form. Right. So like I said, that's kind of playing with fire because you're, you have to apply tension. So you have to be very aware, like of, let's say the rubber bands in the arm and, you know, and you, you know, you can feel it pulling, but you never want that rubber band to snap. Right. right. So, so you have to be very aware. Um, so I try to make my students aware of that. Um, something in the tradition, though, is that massage is there, part of the tradition. Mm. So, you know, if, if, if you feel that tension building in the arm, you know, get some, get some massage so, so that you release that, that tension uh, in, in the arm. So, but that's an important thing is like be aware of, of that. But uh, that tension in the arm business is, is, a, is a big challenge. I think probably another challenge is the the need to be humble and to not have an ego. Uh, that's, that's not tabla specific. That's Indian music specific. Uh, let's say in terms of the musical culture, but I would say it's probably the case for learning anything. Really. The philosophy of the system is the teacher knows everything and the student knows nothing. And if you can just be a sponge and absorb everything, and it's not just the music, it's everything. It, it's the, you know, how to be, how to be a good person, how to be a professional artist. It, it's, it's more than just, you know, it's, it's how to interact with people. It, it's the full thing. So in the tradition, you're not encouraged to ask questions. That's a challenge for, for people from, from the West. You're encouraged not to write things down. That's a challenge for people from the West, right? So memorize everything. Don't ask, ask don't ask questions. Be observant, absorb everything. Mm -hmm. Questions are seen as a challenge. 
to the teacher, that you're challenging their knowledge. So it's considered disrespectful. But of course, most most people who teach now are, are aware of like these let's say, Western pedagogical tendencies uh, because it's the opposite, right? Ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question, right? Ask questions, take notes, write things down. It's, it's totally opposite philosophy. Uh, yeah. So Indian pedagogy is don't ask questions, be observant. Yeah. Um, listen to your teacher, do what they tell you to do. That can be challenging for people who did not grow up with that way of learning. So learning how to learn, right? Learning how to learn and respect the teacher and leave the ego at the door. Uh, that, that, that's not easy, right? Uh, yeah. that, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but just try to be present right and absorb everything that that's the most important thing right so yeah yeah and we can apply that to, to learning anything right that that if, if we're going to any class the assumption is that the teacher knows something that we don't right that we're there to learn something like we don't go to a class to teach the teacher right <laughs> so so you know I, I don't think i'm saying anything you know out of out of the blue or you know that that's completely different uh it's just that it's it's maybe a little bit more clear. Right. <laughs> it's defined. Well, yeah. No, it is that it would be really challenging. I, I, yes. Yeah. So I could tell you a few stories. So one, one, uh, I guess what it would be a comparison or analogy. Um, mm. I, I like to talk about the movie uh, Kill Bill. And mm. I guess this would be, uh, you would have to put a spoiler, spoiler alert. If For anyone having eight years old. Yeah. Let's do it. If anyone hasn't seen the movie, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so the main character is learning martial arts mm -hmm. from some martial arts master and is practicing punching the wall at finger length. Yeah. Right. Like basically you're touching the wall and then punching the wall with the knuckles from like what a zero distance. Right. Basically. Uh, and she's like, what's this? I'm wasting my time. This is useless. I'm never going to need this. Right. Right. Um, and then later, so here's the spoiler. Uh, later finds herself buried alive in a coffin and that's the technique that saves her life. Yeah. So, uh, the other would be maybe karate kid that wax on wax off, mm -hmm. right? That's another example of that, um, where the teacher has you doing something that you don't quite understand, but later you see the value yourself, you discover the value yourself. And I think that that's actually quite a, a valuable thing actually um because very often you can say to someone why something is important and they go uh-huh uh-huh but until they've experienced it for themselves it doesn't have that value so when someone's practicing something without necessarily knowing the the why and then later they discover the why for themselves it it suddenly has you know they have that eureka eureka uh, moment suddenly has a huge value okay now i get it now i see why they had me doing this right um so there is a value to that but when you're the student practicing that thing why am i doing this this makes no sense it can be very frustrating so again that, but that that's another ego thing right, right. now we're, we're questioning the teacher like you know, why are they having me do this? Right. This, this is stupid, right? This is a waste of time. Right. But then when you, you, when you do perceive the value of it, 
you're very thankful, right? That that they taught that to you. Right. Um, yeah. So so it's it's this kind of thing. It's not that's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to just kind of trust and accept and to to do it without without questioning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Sean, I finish out with a segment called Random Ask Questions. First question is, what's an issue within percussion performance or percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I'm I'm a pretty positive person. I I, I don't I don't complain too much. I don't think. Meanwhile, everyone's laughing. He's complaining all the time. Now, hmm. um, I suppose. I mean, for me, you know, as a this is like from the tabla perspective. I suppose I wish that there was more more room for non-Western percussion, you know, and when people say things like the traditional percussion instruments, like they mean snare drum and timpani and marimba and those things right. and and forget that there's other instruments from from elsewhere. Um, so, I, you know, I would love to see, let's say, non-Western classical instruments be able to have uh, more space or more place uh, within mm. the, the general learning. I guess that would be my thing. I, I don't have any like huge complaints. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Next question. Um, and I'm curious about your perspective on being a, a Westerner who is playing tabla and what you've kind of dealt with to, or the ways that you kind of see, I usually tie this into kind of inclusion, diversity, equity, but I'm curious about the ways that you see that from the perspective of you playing an instrument that is not of the culture you grew up with. Yeah. You know, when I started to play tabla, it was like from a percussionist perspective, right? It was one instrument amongst many. I never could have conceived that I could be a, a professional tabla player. Like never. It became my favorite instrument very quickly. But I assumed that I would be playing contemporary chamber music, playing in the back of an orchestra, something something like that, you know, and teaching too was always part of the goal. So it just kind of happened. And, you know, I, I think I, I was just very lucky that my favorite percussion instrument, you know, of course, I put the time in and this and that, that people started to think of me in Montreal. Oh, yeah, that guy who plays tabla. Uh, and when they needed tabla, starting to call me. Um Part of that was from like former local teachers, like passing along gigs uh, and otherwise just like colleagues, like who we went to school together. Oh yeah. He plays tabla. And then, and also probably me commissioning a lot of pieces. So that, that was for me very important to commission pieces for tabla because there wasn't a whole lot of repertoire for the instrument. And there I felt okay. Right. Because it was the, the tabla in the Western classical percussion world. Uh, but I started to play like very um, like humble beginnings, getting called to sub for someone accompanying sitar in an Indian restaurant. Mm. Right. So, so not, you know, up on the big stage or anything like that, you know, yeah. most people are, they're eating their meal. They're not even listening. You know, it's like getting paid a little bit, you get a free meal and you, you practice in front of people. It's kind of like that. Yeah. And then that evolved. I was actually playing two nights a week in restaurants and then getting called for weddings and this and that, and then getting called for more like public, you know, concert type gigs and things like that. And it was a long process, you know, in terms of let's be being, you know, calling myself a tabla player as opposed to a percussionist who plays tabla, you know, that, that took a long time and, and studying with, with my guru, my teacher, 
um, for, for, for the years uh, until he passed away, uh, end of 2011. In the tradition, and this is where I think a lot of uh, Western musicians go wrong, maybe because they don't know. But in the tradition, you need your teacher's permission to teach and you need your teacher's permission to perform. Fortunately, I, I, I had that permission um, where, where there are people out there possibly teaching and performing that, that don't have that permission uh, from their teachers. Um, but that, that's a very important part of it uh, is having the in the tradition is it like having their blessing, uh, you know, but it's it's about having their permission uh, for that. Um, so that and getting called for gigs uh, put on by uh, organizations within the Indian community. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's where uh, things started to change and start in terms of maybe my acceptance as a in quotes like legit tabla player, getting called to do yeah events put on from the by the Indian or South Asian community. Uh, and that's a good feeling to to you know to to be uh, welcomed into the community and to be a part of that community now um, in in Montreal and in in the rest of Canada. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, very uh, thankful for that. You know, the, the, that happened. But I think for me, it's a lot of luck, a lot of uh, just, you know, random people that I've met. Uh, the fact that I'm in Montreal and not maybe New York City, uh, there, there's a lot of a lot of luck factors that came in. My teacher would would for, for him, it was very simple. Anytime I would get a grant, anytime I would get a nice gig or anything like that, he would just say, of course. You're practicing. It, it was as simple as that. Mm. It, it's you practice, then all the good things will come. That goes yeah. back to the importance of practicing in the tradition. It, that that's the that's how we honor our teacher. That's how we honor the tradition is through practice. So practice has a kind of a devotional aspect to it. Yeah. Well, and also it sounds like you can get if like if your teacher says you may now pursue or, you know, you know, do your own kind of do your own thing within the genre. It's like your permission to create the next almost generation of, of an oral tradition. Like you're, you're now someone who can pass that tradition along. Right. I think so. I mean, okay. I've been, sure. do, no, I mean, I, I've been doing it. Um, yeah. So it, it it's interesting. So it's important actually, because when you enter into a relationship with a guru, it's, it's a little bit more than just a teacher student. It's like a yeah. master disciple kind of relationship. And the student is committing to the teacher to practice, to respect them, to respect the tradition, uh, to do their best to uphold that tradition. And at the same time, the teacher is making a commitment to the student that they're going to teach them what they know and with the goal of eventually turning the student themselves into a teacher, right? So th- that's the the goal is to to pass it along, right? There's no teacher who wants it to end with them, right? This is an oral tradition. You can't go and buy the score, right? It, it has to be taught, passed along generation to generation to generation. So yeah. every teacher's goal is that this gets passed on so that it can be passed on Again, when the student is ready for that, uh, yes. so so that so that's very important. So there's no one who just plays, right? You play and you teach. That that's the that's the tradition. There isn't a separation between performer and educator, right? Uh, 
you you perform that's one way of passing along the tradition and you teach that's another way of passing on the tradition and both are are equally important and it has to do with respect for the teacher respect for the lineage respect for the tradition all that it, it it's very important every time i play any mistake i i make and i think okay well it's my fault i made the mistake i don't want to make the the lineage look bad <laughs> it's right right and anything that maybe anyone liked it's not me. That's that's because I was very lucky to have this kind of a teacher. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Okay, so other questions. These are not going to be uh these will now get very random, but has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? The impression. I haven't heard if anyone's doing any impressions of me, it's behind my back. <laughs> um <laughs> I've done some concerts where where uh, there have been artists like simultaneously drawing the musicians. Oh, uh, interesting. But, okay. but but I I I don't know. It's like they added forty years to my <laughs> to my age. Like 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 it. I felt it didn't look like me at all. So no 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 no, uh, no successful impressions. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> what am I a hundred? Come on. <laughs> yeah, it, it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Um, what's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Maybe impractical in terms of putting it on. Sometimes if I go running in the wintertime, I have this thing oh. that goes over my head uh, and then you uh -huh. got to get it just the right way. So you can, you can see and you can breathe. And yeah, yeah. so it's a, pr it's practical in, in its use, but it's impractical in terms of the, the, the putting it on and, and, and getting, getting set up with that. <laughs> <laughs> like so not a major whole, yeah it covers your whole yeah. your whole head so but you can still see right is that the that's it so you gotta you gotta make sure that the hole is in the right place and that everything's yeah, yeah. lined up right otherwise like when you put your hat on over the top there's like bumps and things and it's not comfortable so you gotta get it laid <laughs> laid out smoothly you know right <laughs> yeah this is not a major issue yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right what is your biggest kitchen mess up I make coffee in the morning. I, I do a AeroPress mm. and uh, I use the upside down technique. Um, so it's upside down. You yeah. put the, the coffee grinds inside, you put the water, you let it sit uh, for a certain amount of time. And I'm, I'm trying to do everything very quickly in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so I'm getting the, the toast out and this and that. It's a kind of a, almost a choreography at this point, you know, making the coffee and getting everything else ready. And I don't know, I just turned quickly in the wrong way and the whole AeroPress went flying and you had like coffee, oh, coffee no. grinds and the liquid and all that all over the place. And it was like, yeah, this uh, brown mess all over. It was not pretty. And that, it, that would be it. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have to get a new AeroPress or is it just, it just kind of. No, the AeroPress was fine. It's, it's actually like pretty strong plastic, but yeah. it was just the, the, everything getting like flying all over the place The it's not because it's not just the co that it was coffee liquid it was the grinds too right yeah. so it was like it was just yeah it was a mess <laughs> yeah i gotcha now on the flip side do you have a a specialty in the kitchen that you make i like to do well indian food maybe is is one okay. that's maybe it doesn't sound very very original um over the pandemic i learned how to make pizza and Ooh. i think i'm pretty good at it uh like i do my own dough and that mm. so maybe that yeah can you get yeah, it can bake. you get it nice and round because that's always a challenge 
Uh, my pan is rectangular. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So yeah. no, not this. <laughs> so, 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 I, so I, I'm stretching it out like to maximize like the surface area. So I'm just trying to get it to to fit the uh, the pan. But when yeah. when I can, when the dough like stretches, like mm-hmm. I'm able to just keep pulling and pulling and pulling, and it doesn't rip. I'm very happy. You know, yeah. when I could get to the size of the pan, like just by pulling it, you know, with no rips and like, yeah, and then it makes me very happy. It's a good satisfaction, you know, feeling of satisfaction there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. All right. Uh, what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? I like sci-fi stuff. Okay. I don't know. I like, I like Star Wars. I like Star Trek too, if that's allowed. <laughs> I like Trump. I, I, right. <laughs> I don't know if it's allowed to like both. Uh, you know, I, I like I like that that's yeah, sci-fi kind of stuff. There's a bad movie that I like a lot. Uh is uh, They Live. Uh, oh yes, from- <laughs> that's a clap with Roddy Piper. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I so as I've been getting into like with my synthesizer project, like nostalgic 80s stuff, I've been revisiting like John Carpenter movies and like, yes. you know, like kind of like I don't know what you would call it, like B horror, like cheesy yeah. sci-fi, and yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. So they're, they're bad movies, but they're, like they're bad, they're so bad they're good kind of thing. Like, of course, like, yeah, like yeah, I, I yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying that a lot, and the the soundtracks and that like that that was my main reason was to to listen to the soundtracks. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm enjoying revisiting like those those old movies. So that those are my bad movies, but that are they're good. They're not yeah. bad. They're. <laughs> That's a classic. That's got one of the great fight scenes in in They Live. Yeah, yeah. He's like suplexing him and yeah, that's it's and it's a long scene. It's like a it's like a 10 minute fight. It's so long, but just kind of but a, I guess that's what's great yeah, about. Well, well, I guess you know if you're if you're getting a wrestler to do your movie, I I guess you're going to build in a fight scene. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> well yeah, okay so, so anything a, of that that kind yeah. of thing I, i've been i've been having fun with that yeah yeah that no that's that's wonderful so the related question was going to be do you have a sports fandom no i'm actually not a big sports person um you know sometimes if the montreal Canadiens would make it into the playoffs then i start to watch like i don't i don't watch regularly um, yeah, yeah. Like in high school, I was big into sports. I collected cards and all that, and I would mm. play. But then after, not so much. Um, when I was doing curling, I was watching curling on TV a lot. Um, but these days, not not so much sports. Like I'm aware, but I mm-hmm. but I don't I don't really follow. Yeah, I'm just I don't know. I'm so busy with music and I, being a musician twenty four seven. It's probably not healthy. I should probably find some non music hobbies at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I, I watch some sci-fi TV or you know things like that on Netflix, but uh, yeah, sports not not a big part of my my day to day. Sorry, <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, well, I was gonna say it, it, in the in terms of the the hockey, like it's not as if uh, you know Montreal or well, I know not Toronto for you, but it's not not like the Canadians <laughs> have been like dominating in the ways that they once did. You know, Pro- probably when I used to watch hockey was. Like it was in those days when they were winning. Um, yeah. Like when was the last Stanley Cup? Was like when Patrick Law was was uh, was on the team, you know. And I, I probably haven't. I probably can't name any player since then, you know. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> right. yeah, I know that 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 makes me like not a good fan. But uh, yeah, I, I guess as as you know, life progresses and priorities right. go elsewhere, you know. I, when I I got into Indian music. 
it, it wasn't just tabla and Indian music, but really like the whole culture and really changed my life. You know, I, I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of, you know, uh, you know, watching uh, movies and, uh, yeah. and going to concerts and, you know, lots of concerts and just listening to music all the time, like listening to recordings and anything I could get my hands on, you know, pre-internet. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that really, you know, getting into Indian music really uh, like changed my life in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, uh, OK, so then I'm going to on a related question or do you have a a favorite of the in in a Bollywood style film or one that you need to like people need to know about? I think ones that I know that I, I mean, like they're kind of classics. Uh, the, the ones that I like are 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 the kind of the older style ones that have a foundation in the classical music, mm. uh, in the soundtrack, uh, Dev Das is a great soundtrack that that's a classic movie. Um, there's a modern version of Dev Das and there's a, a, an older, like, you know, like the remake, like, you know, before like the remakes, like Hollywood does the same thing, but the, yeah. the, the new Dev Das, like, I mean, new, I mean, it's, I don't know how old that, that 15 years old at this point. Um, like that that's a, a modern classic i think but it is a famous movie devdas i think uh, a lot of people would know that one but the soundtrack is really really excellent so so that that's one that i would really recommend uh, otherwise uh, less traditional maybe uh, lagan is fun it's about cooking. oh yeah yeah, that, yeah that's another classic but again these are very mainstream ones um yeah. if i was going to give something that maybe people wouldn't know is a very old one people who know bollywood would know it but it's an old film uh, Janaka Janaka Payal Bajay. And, uh, that, that has a very famous Katak dancer, uh, and a very famous tabla player playing in it. Uh, that, that's, uh, that's an old, uh, an old classic. Yeah. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Uh, Iceland and hmm. I was in Japan and Japan too, uh, haven't been yet. So, most of my travel is gig based so uh yeah someone please uh, please book me in uh, in iceland or japan and i will go i'll, I'll go anywhere right <laughs> but, but those are kind of top of my list uh places that i would i would love to visit yeah well relatedly how much of canada have you seen pretty much i mean there's a lot of in between right like i, yeah. I haven't driven i haven't driven coast to coast uh, I've performed in every province nice. and one out of three of the territories. So there's, I still have not been to Yukon and I've not been to Northwest territories. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so if I'm putting a stamp for each one, you know, I still, I haven't been everywhere yet, but even, you know, being to, to different places like, you know, Canada's huge. The yeah. provinces are very big. Most yeah. of them. Uh, and, you know, between major cities, there's still a lot of smaller places. Um, there's a lot, uh, a lot in there. Um, there's a lot to see, lots of different, uh, just like the U.S., lots of different climates, lots of different uh, nature. Um, yeah. And, yeah, maybe one day that would be something that could be fun to do, drive coast to coast to, to connect, you know, to fill in the, the in-between, you know, that you don't get when you're flying. Um yeah. Yeah, when you tour though, you 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 drive around and you see, and you see things. But yeah, it's a huge country. So there, especially in the north, there's there's lots, lots, lots that I that I that I haven't seen. Relatedly, what's what was your French and English background? If mm. you're in Quebec, yeah. So I'm I'm one of the Anglophone minority. Okay. Uh, 
So, yeah, so my, my parents are both uh, English speakers, but I learned French in school. You know, uh, my parents always thought it was important to, to learn French. So uh, I was always in some form of a some kind of bilingual program, you know, so learning, you know, like half the day in English, half the day in French, this kind of thing. In uh, in CJEP, the pre, uh, pre-university, that was just in English at the time. Nowadays, there is a French component to that, too. Uh, and then once you're in university, if you're at McGill, if you're not taking a French class, everything is in English. So, so I didn't have to do French, uh, there we have, we have in Montreal, we have two English universities and two French universities. So, I mean, French is there. If you want to take language classes, it's there, but, uh, but our like McGill, the, the language of instruction is, is English, but out in the world, I mean, uh, I speak French quite a lot. Uh, you know, when I'm doing gigs very often, the interactions are in French. And, you know, when you speak to the audience, you need to speak in French. So, uh, my partner is francophone, you know, so I'm speaking with her all the time, uh, in French, you know, we, we call it the franglais, you know, like, uh, French, English, English, uh, like the, like, yeah, the, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. So it's, you know, like mid sentence switching between languages right. kind of thing. So I'm, I'm pretty bilingual. I, I'm comfortable to you know, to, to, to operate in, in both languages. Yeah. I know you mentioned one of the classes that you teach is career development. And I'm curious if you have a favorite lesson or story that you kind of, you, you regularly impart to students that are, that you come into contact through that class. The first class, when I give the introduction, I usually take that class to talk a little bit about myself very, you know, selfishly. You know, the idea of being a percussionist, uh, being versatile, keeping doors open, right? This kind of thing transfers to anyone. Um, and also the idea of, you know, we imagine you're going to go to school and then get the gig. And, you know, like it's a clear straight line when really there's a lot of twists and turns and curves and ups and downs. And sometimes we have in our mind, you know, it's good to have a goal. We want to do something, but that can change right? It's not set in stone. You might discover something new that you didn't know about before. You know, being versatile, keeping doors open, not a straight line, you know, follow the path, you know, do what you're doing and, you know, things will, will work out in the end, you know, and and then ultimately what my, my guru said, practice, you know, if you practice, you know, it's kind of like the field of dreams, right? If you build it, they will come, right? So if you practice, just practice and things will work out in the end. Yeah. Uh, last couple, strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Yeah. So I was premiering a new piece uh, for Tabla with uh, fixed media, with uh, whatever, like with tape. Yeah. And I have to say a line and cue the technician to start the recording after a little bit. Yeah. So we get to that point and the tape doesn't start. And then he presses play and it started a bit late. And then he gets up and he's like, stop, let's do it again. I was like, oh my God. And this is in the middle of the performance. He's, he's, yeah. he's telling you. Yeah. The technician, the technician stops it and says, <laughs> let's start it again. Like, I was fine. You know, like it was, it was like one second late. I, I, I had already adjusted. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a problem. It really wasn't a problem. He stopped it and <laughs> let's start it again. So then I had to say my spiel again, you know, which now has no impact because I've said <laughs> it already. Right. Yeah. 
just so, just so that he could have a second try at starting the tape in the right place. So that that, that was a pretty uh, uncomfortable moment. So a- after that, I figured how I can start the tape myself. <laughs> there it is, and, and that's how I do that piece now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I I trigger it myself. I, not, no one's going to restart it on me. <laughs> Wow. I forget about that being a part of, uh, of sometimes using other people. You know, we had practiced it in the, you know, in the sound check, but it didn't go exactly, you know, but like I said, I would have been fine. Just keep going. The audience didn't need to know. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's the difference between a performance and a rehearsal. Right. Yeah. Nice. All right. Uh, Sean, last question. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, performance, uh, poetry, excuse me, anything has impacted you the most recently? That's a good question. Because impacted me the most, you know, that that's easy. That's my guru's first album mm. that was recorded with, with Bob Becker, uh, mm. The Art of Banaras Baj. It's not recent not a That's recent okay. impact, but it's a, it, we could say it's a constant impact, right. Or yeah. a constant influence. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Art of Banaras Baj. That would be like always my number one recommendation for, for people to, to check out and listen. And it's kind of the model of the, the Banaras style tabla solo, kind of the, the height that we all aspire to and, and definitely will never come, never come even close, but uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a constant uh, inspiration. Yeah. What was the first time that you heard it? I don't know. Um, it was as soon as I was able to get my hands on a copy. Pri- prior sure to studying with him. Yeah. Yeah. So pro- probably from Bob, uh, Bob Becker. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was very lucky. Like I, I said earlier, I, like b- before I met my guru, I studied with Bob Becker. Like, like, like I, I've just been like too lucky. Um, so uh, I, I remember that Bob gave me a vinyl, a record of that album at some point, but I'm pretty sure I bought it on CD before I got the vinyl. Mm. Um, I don't know. It must've been in, in the nineties. That's like late nineties or something like that. I, I, I don't remember. I mean, but the album is much before I, I, but, but these things are not so easily available at the time, right? It was very hard to, to get recordings of Indian classical music uh, in Montreal, like maybe in Toronto, there would have, I would have had better access. Um, But Toronto is a good, uh, like six hours drive from Montreal, (laughs) not exactly next door. great to chat with Sean for this episode. I appreciated his good cheer and his extensive knowledge, which I really enjoyed hearing about. And I look forward to meeting him in person soon. Best wishes going forward, Sean. This week's rave is the 2023 film, The Holdovers, starring Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa, and directed by Alexander Payne. Currently in theaters and on demand. As one theater goer said at the end of the film, well, that was a total delight. Couldn't agree more. The plot is as follows. At a New England prep school in the early 1970s, 
a longtime faculty member, played by Paul Giamatti, is told he has to stay in town for the winter holiday break and ends up having to manage the holdovers, a.k.a. those students who have to stay for the break as well. Dominic Sessa plays the student who is left at school the longest, and both are there with the kitchen manager for the school, played by Divine Joy Randolph. And hijinks ensue! The director, Alexander Payne, has long been a favorite of mine. His other films I'm quite fond of include Downsizing, Sideways, Election, Citizen Ruth, Nebraska, and The Descendants. He definitely has a style of movie making, which involves some mixture of sarcasm, backtalk, and swearing, all of which make for movie magic. One other part of each of his films that stands out is his ability to fully flesh out characters through the sarcasm, etc., to find the heart of what they're actually like. In this case, all three of the main characters are dealing with an immense amount of grief for different reasons. And it's that which bonds them all together and the discovery of that grief that makes the movie work. Additionally, and maybe this was just a fun exercise, but Alexander Payne produced the movie to look like it was released in 1971, the year that the film takes place. He makes that happen by appearing to have shot it, I think, on film. He makes the credits and the sound look like it was in the font of Love Story or some other movie from that time, and even includes a copyright date of 1971 in the opening credits to continue to confuse you, I guess. Additionally, the movie fits Paul Giamatti like a glove. He plays this put-upon sad sack very well, similar to what he did in Sideways, and is a great muse for Alexander Payne. Dominic Sessa was also great as the difficult high school student, though the real find on this movie is Divine Joy Randolph. I was made aware of her recently in her work in the very short-lived HBO series The Idol, and she is excellent here. She manages to capture the complexity of her own standing in this very white world, while also working through her own grief and providing an important and effective voice of reason to all that's going on. It's a very challenging part done very well. It's an excellent film with excellent performances, and there's a lot there for those of you in the teaching profession, let me tell you. So check out The Holdovers. You'll be glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a comment and rate and review the episode wherever you can. You can also find it on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sParkPod at gmail.com. And we'll catch you next time for more of our interviews with those presenting at ASIC 2023. Until then.